Happy Saturday, and thank you for joining me today. David Atkins, a member of the California DNC, a guest on this show before. Um, he's going to be joining me tonight for a special interview. Uh, you're going to want to hear this interview. Uh, it's about essentially uh, the state of our Democratic Republic right now, as we're seeing these massive attacks on voting rights and also conspiracy theories among Republicans right now. Earlier this week on Capitol Hill, the newly established House Select Committee charged with investigating the January 6th insurrection um, held their very first hearing. The committee was composed of Democrats and Republicans, a renewed bipartisan effort to investigate this domestic terrorist attack. In the past, there have been reports and also hearings on what happened that day, but earlier this week, it was just completely different. After the hearing, this was the headline at NPR, quote, officers give harrowing testimony on their experience defending the Capitol on January 6th. And that is indeed true. Capitol Police Officers Harry Dunn and Aquilino Ganell, along with D.C. Metropolitan Police Officers Daniel Hodges and Michael Fanone, delivered very emotional and impassionate remarks. If you are at work or you are just busy this week, I'm going to play for you clips of the hearing. But if you'd like to watch the full hearing, um, it is accessible online. Uh, before I play these clips, I will warn you that there is use of explicit and also derogatory language here. Um, so if you have any children nearby and you don't want them to hear this, now would be a good time to pause the show or to listen to it later. All right, here it is. I told them to just leave the Capitol. And in response, they yelled, no, man, this is our house. President Trump invited us here. We're here to stop the steal. Joe Biden is not the president. Nobody voted for Joe Biden. I responded, well, I voted for Joe Biden. Does my vote not count? Am I nobody? That prompted a torrent of racial epithets. One woman in a pink MAGA shirt yelled, you hear that, guys? This nigger voted for Joe Biden. Then the crowd, perhaps around 20 people, joined in screaming, boo, fucking nigger. No one had ever, ever called me a nigger while wearing the uniform of a Capitol Police officer. In the days following the attempted insurrection, other black officers shared with me their own stories of racial abuse on January 6th. One officer told me he had never, and in his, his entire 40 years of life, been called a nigger to his face. And that streak ended on January 6th. At some point during the fighting, I was dragged from the line of officers and into the crowd. I heard someone scream, I got one. As I was swarmed by a violent mob, they ripped off my badge. They grabbed and stripped me of my radio. They seized ammunition that was secured to my body. They began to beat me with their fists and with what felt like hard metal objects. At one point, I came face to face with an attacker who repeatedly lunged for me and attempted to remove my firearm. I heard chanting from some in the crowd, get his gun and kill him with his own gun. I was aware enough to recognize I was at risk of being stripped of and killed with my own firearm. I was electrocuted again and again and again with a taser. I was effectively defenseless and gradually sustaining injury from the increasing pressure of the mob. Directly in front of me, a man seized the opportunity of my vulnerability, grabbed the front of my gas mask, and used it to beat my head against the door. 
He switched to pulling it off my head, the straps stretching against my skull and straining my neck. He never uttered any words I recognized, but opted instead for guttural screams. I remember him foaming at the mouth. He also put his cell phone in his mouth so they had both hands free to assault me. What we were suggested that day was like something from a medieval battle. I vividly heard officers screaming in agony and pain just an arm length from me. I didn't know at that time but that was Officer Hodges, and he's here today to testify. I, too, was being crushed by the riders. I could feel my, myself losing oxygen and recall thinking to myself, this is how I'm going to die defending this entrance. Quote, this is how I'm going to die, defending this entrance. Once again, these were these were opening remarks and also um, just uh, anger from the four Capitol police officers who testified today on Capitol, who testified earlier this week on Capitol Hill. The first officer was Harry Dunn with the United States Capitol Police testifying about how racial epithets were yelled at him during the attempted insurrection. The second officer, Michael Fanone, with the D.C. Metropolitan Police just excoriated Republicans for downplaying and lying about the insurrection and insisting the House Select Committee conduct a meaningful investigation. The third officer, Mr. Daniel Hodges with the D.C. Metropolitan Police, who was assaulted and described as his unit being broken up, um, he said that the domestic terrorists that tried, they essentially tried to recruit him that day, uh, one asking him, quote, are you my brother? Officer Hodges said he found it ironic that the terrorists were carrying Blue Lives Matter flags, which stands in solidarity with law enforcement. Uh, They were carrying these flags, but yet they were assaulting officers. That's not only hypocritical, but it's deplorable. So that's the message you're sending, right? I mean, we only support law enforcement when it's politically convenient for us. And the fourth officer who testified was Capitol Police Officer Aquilino Ganell, um, who you heard talk about how insurrection, how the insurrection was worse than anything he ever experienced during his time as a veteran in Iraq. He testified about that at the hearing earlier this week. When Officer Hodges was asked what he was defending that day, this was his response. Well, it's clear that you suffered immense pain from the assault. It's clear that you were outnumbered, and yet you just said you got back out there again. Tell me, what, what's worth all of that pain? What was worth it? What were you fighting for that day? Democracy. Um, you were 40 feet away, 40 yards, whatever. Um, if, especially with the razor-thin margins on um, Democrats and Republicans in the House and Senate, If any single one person was kidnapped or killed, which I have no doubt in my mind is what they intended, that would affect the outcome of legislation and and all your uh, duties for years to come. And if that's just one person, what if you know more than one person? It would the difference would be even greater than what should be and will be. and for obviously for each other, you know, you, you, um, your immediate concern is the well-being of your colleagues, the other officers who were there fighting beside me. Um, I think I can speak for everyone. I say we worry about each other more than ourselves. That's just in our nature. Uh, it's part of why you become a police officer. So, you know, like when Fanon said he was trying to find out who needs help, and no one would volunteer. 
that's just an example of that kind of uh, mindset that we have. So it was, um, it was for democracy. It was for the men and women of the House and Senate. It was for each other. And it was for the future of the country. Democratic Congresswoman Stephanie Murray asked, what were you defending that day? Officer Hodges unequivocally responded, he was defending democracy, also defending the other Capitol Police officers that were there. Once again, just harrowing recounts uh, from officers who defended the Capitol on January 6th as these domestic terrorists had breached it and caused destruction. ProPublica did interviews with 19 current and former officers on how the failure of leadership and also communication led to the insurrection being worse. This was uh, just, I believe, a couple months ago, back June. Uh, according to this reporting, the Capitol Police officer, um, the Capitol Police uh, reportedly spent weeks uh, working 12 to 16 hour days in uh, preparation for Black Lives Matter demonstrations. The National Guard was also on site during those protests. One poor former official told ProPublica, quote, we had intel that nothing was going to happen. Literally nothing. The response was, we don't trust the intel. Contrast that to January 6th, and there was an intelligence blackout. Keith McFadden, a former Capitol Police officer, said, quote, We normally have pretty good information regarding these people and how far they are from the Capitol. We heard nothing that day. End quote. For members of the Capitol Police riot squad, the lack of information was just completely horrific and also led to many thoughts of uncertainty. Then they began essentially hearing desperate cries for help from other officers. Reportedly, they heard 1033, which is an officer and essentially crying for help. Reportedly, a combat veteran was forced to fall back from the line with his face covered in bear spray and he could barely see or breathe. The Capitol Police riot squad lost the line and had to fall back as the insurrectionists cornered them. Capitol Police were briefed that projected, um, were briefed essentially that a projected crowd of 20,000 people in Washington, D.C. on the week of January 6th was likely. The intelligence said to expect militia and right-wing extremist groups, including the Proud Boys, the Boogaloo Boys, and the white supremacist group Patriot Front. According to one officer who attended that briefing, some were expected to be armed and also anticipate the prospect of violence. Reportedly, the officers weren't allowed to convey that report or that information with anyone else. Many officers told ProPublica that they got warnings about what could happen on January 6th. One said, quote, we went into work like it was a normal effing day. Another said, quote, it was a business as usual. The main thing we were told uh, was to be on the lookout for counter demonstrators, end quote. Now, the Capitol Police Force is composed of four main divisions, uh, four different divisions, uh, which is each responsible for defending their own side of the Capitol. But reportedly, the, those briefings just stopped years ago, and it led to the failure of intelligence coordination on January 6th in terms of everyone being on the same page, looking out for the same threat. In this ProPublica article, there's reports of old and deteriorated helmets. One officer said he got his decades ago, and the paddling, um, the padding essentially was just rotted out. Others said their helmets were never replaced. Many didn't have gas masks, and also most officers hadn't received riot training in years. I will say on that point there about essentially the deterioration in equipment for Capitol Police officers, Congress has just approved an emergency refunding for the Capitol Police as they were going through hard times. Times having to furlough their workers. 
One told, uh, one officer told ProPublica, quote, they have been asking about this for over 10 years, the kind of equipment, the kind of training. We've always talked about the big one. So there are still many questions about the January 6th insurrection and what else happened, specifically in the dark and what hasn't been revealed yet. But as we wait for those questions to be answered, additional evidence is coming to light almost every day. Just on Wednesday earlier this week, the Washington Post reported that Trump called Acting Attorney General Jeff Rosen almost every day pressuring him about the election. Yesterday, multiple news organizations um, reported that according to notes, Trump called Rosen and asked him to say that the election was corrupt or risk losing his job. This phone call transpired on December 27th in 2020 with Jeff Rosen and his deputy, Richard Donahue. Uh, Trump asked, Trump said, quote, people are angry, blaming DOJ for inaction. The Department of Justice is failing to respond to legitimate complaints and reports of crimes. You guys must not be following the Internet the way I do. This is electioneering fraud. End quote. When Rosen essentially said, we've investigated these claims and they're completely false and insane. Plus, we can't do that, sir. Trump persisted by saying, quote, just say that the election was corrupt and leave the rest to me and the Republican congressman. We have an obligation to tell the people that this was an illegal, corrupt election, end quote. Donahue wrote, um, Richard Donahue, uh, which is Rosen's deputy, he wrote in his notes that Trump specifically referred to Republican Congressman Jim Jordan, also Scott Perry, and Republican Senator Ron Johnson. This news, when you look at it now, it's, I mean, even when you look at it uh, in retrospect, it's horrific. And also, if this news was successful, it would have been a nonviolent coup. And, you know, I mean, it just if you just look at this, it would have effectively been a nonviolent coup because a federal government agency, the Department of Justice, saying that the election, if they did, saying that the election was corrupt, the election was stolen from Donald Trump, this, was, this election was illegitimate, that would have thrown the entire nation into turmoil, also our Democratic Republic, and also the, the potential for violence would have risen. And although this isn't Trump's first attempt, it is one of the most concerning. According to a new book by Washington Post reporters um, Carol Lenning and Philip Rucker, I Alone Can Fix It, uh, prominent generals worried uh, that Trump would essentially attempt a coup after the election. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, Staffs, Mark Milley, said, quote, They may try, but they're not going to effing succeed. You can't do this without the military. We're the guys with the guns. End quote. Uh, there is more from the book um, about this horrific prospect. And it reads, quote, A student of history, Milley saw Trump as a classic authoritarian leader with nothing to lose. He described to aides that he kept having this stomach-churning feeling that some of the worrisome early stages of 20th century fascism in Germany were replaying in the 21st century America. He saw parallels between Trump's rhetoric of election fraud and Adolf Hitler's insistence to his followers at the Nuremberg rallies that he was both a victim and their savior. This is a Rishtag moment, Millie told aides. The gospel are furrer. End quote. Rishtag is when uh, the parliament building in Germany, by that name, uh, burned. Essentially, it burned to the ground. It took hours for firefighters to put out that fire and soon became known as the Rishtag fire. The damage cost $1 million and communists, uh, a communist at the crime scene was arrested. 
from many Germans perspective, they thought communism, uh, they thought communists essentially were beginning to take matters into their own hands and revolt against the German government. Very soon, that same sentiment was essentially expressed and shared and favored with the German government and communists were soon arrested at their headquarters. During those raids, they falsely accused them of planning some kind of violent attack. Hitler and the Nazi party continued perpetuating the big lie that communists had burned down the essentially had burned down the Reichstag building, even though there was no substantial evidence of that. Hitler soon convinced the president of Germany by basically saying, hey, you know, these communists, they're, they're quite suspicious. And I think they might be planning some kind of attack. Sir, we should probably act on this immediately. And so that earnest request was fulfilled when the president issued the Reichstag fire decree. Just one day after the fire, the decree went into effect and it was just catastrophic for Germany's democracy. Well, eroding democracy. It suspended the right to assembly, freedom of speech, the freedom of the press, and also constitutional safeguards. This also permitted the government to apprehend any opponent, be it a politician, intrepid journalist, activist, those suspicious communists, or a random worker on the street freely expressing his or her political views um, that may be essentially in opposition with the government stance. They also had the right to disband political organizations and, can, and confiscate private property. Make sure you're sitting down from this one. Uh, the Reichstag decree also gave the Nazi regime the right to overrule state and local laws and also overthrow state and local governments. With the free press being eroded almost daily, uh, propaganda just ran rampant, causing many Germans to view Hitler as their savior against those evil communists. Very soon, Hitler got something called the Enabling Act passed. This gave his cabinet legislative power and the ability to bypass parliament. At a moment of public horror and confusion, Hitler exploited it and he used it for evil. The Nazi regime had gained total power, which made Germany no longer a democracy, but a dictatorship. It was absolutely tyrannical, and from there, Hitler became the dictator of Nazi Germany. He murdered his political op opposition. He dissolved parliament. He started World War II and also ordered one of the worst and most diabolical atrocities in human history known as the Holocaust. Timothy Snyder, professor at Yale University and author of On Tyranny, 20 Lessons from the 20th Century, wrote an article about this, um, quote, the Reichstag fire shows how quickly a modern republic can be transformed into an authoritarian regime. The American founding fathers knew that democracy they knew that the democracy they were creating was vulnerable to an aspiring tyrant who might seize upon some dramatic event as grounds for the suspicion of our rights. As James Madison nicely put it, in tyranny arises, quote, on some favorable emergency. End quote. Back in 1933, the favorable emergency was saving the nation from those evil darn communists. In our case, in 2021, also in 2020, the favorable emergency by Republicans and by the Trump administration, by the Trump campaign, was saving the nation from a fraudulent and stolen election. Trump's rally on January 6th was literally headlined the Save America rally. 
Now, the Trump, now that Trump is out of office, uh, many threats still do remain, such as majority of the Republican Party believing that he'll be reinstated next month, also that he didn't really lose the election. The, that dangerous notion that he'll be reinstated next month in August has the risk of potential violence. Also, these bogus audits with the Department of Justice recently warning these states about these third-party companies counting electoral ballots, saying that it's in violation, potential violation of federal law. And also these voter suppression and nullification bills that are continuing to be passed through these Republican-controlled states with their legislators. I told you recently about a big voting rights march here in Texas. Well, it just ended today at the state capitol in Austin, and former Congressman Beto O'Rourke was among many of those who spoke at this rally about the importance of federal voting rights and also other issues today. This was reporting from KHOU 11 News. It was a super hot day out here in Austin, but that did not stop people from taking over the Capitol to fight for voting rights. Earlier today, the group walked a mile and marched a mile all around the state Capitol building, and they were chanting and carrying signs, but they were also fighting for other issues as well. They wanted to address ending the filibuster as well as ending poverty and also raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour. This was the end of a three-day, almost 30-mile march that started in Georgetown and ended right here in Austin. Their march led them to the steps of the state Capitol where they raised not just signs, but their voices demanding action to take care of those they say are under attack. My father fought in World War II for democracy. So I think the least I can do is be out here and protect democracy and our right to vote. Those seeking to limit access to the vote will strangle liberty and justice for all. You know, Texas may have produced the laws that have made this the hardest state in the nation in which to vote, a state that has closed more than 700 polling places, most of them concentrated in low-income and black and brown neighborhoods, making people wait five, six, seven hours in order to vote in maybe Texas, where our voter ID law says you can use your license to carry a firearm to prove who you are at the polling place, but you cannot use your student ID from the University of Texas at Austin to prove who you are at the polling place. It may be Texas that has proposed new voter suppression legislation to make it harder on those who have a disability, to make it harder on young people, the very old, and those who just want to exercise their right to vote. But I'll tell you what, my fellow Texans, this state, has produced some extraordinary leaders, some extraordinary power, and some extraordinary energy. A hundred years ago, a hundred years ago, the state legislature right here behind us, in all their wisdom, passed a law called the All-White Primary Bill that denied the right to vote for any person of color in any primary of any importance in the state of Texas. And one of our fellow Texans a hundred years ago, Dr. Lawrence Nixon in El Paso, Texas, who founded the first chapter of the NAACP, nonetheless, though, though he was a black man and the law said that black men could not vote, went to his polling place, walked up to the election judge, showed the receipt for his poll tax, and tried to vote. And that election judge said, Dr. Nixon, you know I can't let you vote. And Dr. Nixon said, I know you can't, but I've got to try. And try he did, year after year, election after election, 20 years 
into that fight in 1944 with another Texan, Lonnie Smith. They struck down that law in a victory in the Supreme Court, Smith versus Albright. The persistence, the strength, and the courage of this movement is what it's about. So let me close with this. For those who are tempted to despair at this moment, given everything that we're up against, those Republicans who'd rather defend insurrection than support our democracy, these rigged voting laws in Georgia and Florida and a dozen other states that are going to make it harder for so many millions of our fellow Americans to vote. I ask you to think about Dr. Lawrence Dixon. I, think, I ask you to think about John Lewis. I ask you to think about every man and every woman who had the courage of their convictions and did what they needed to do at their own moment of truth in this country's history. Are we going to fight for the right to vote? Are we going to give up until we get it? No. We're going to push through. We're going to push through until we win this. I want to thank each and every single one of you for being here. I want to thank our courageous state legislators who are in Washington, D.C. right now. And I want to thank those Democratic senators like Royce West and Boris Miles who came out today. We are the courage this country needs. Let's keep it up. Let's keep it up. At that rally, you could hear protesters chanting today, uh, quote, hey, hey, ho, ho, voter suppression has got to go. Many congressional members and also activists have been arrested in the fight to save voting rights as our democratic republic remains under attack, remains under just grave assault right now. David Atkins, an elected member of the California DNC, joins me next. At a time when we're asked to sacrifice, we step up to do our part on the home front, on the front lines, to lend a helping hand and hold each other up. We are resilient, vigilant, and we'll get through this because we're better together, even if we're a little farther apart. Joining me now for the interview is uh, Mr. David Atkins. Mr. Atkins is a elected member of the California DNC as well as a contributor to the Washington, I think it's weekly or monthly? Monthly. Sorry about that. Uh, no thank you so much for coming back on the show. Uh, happy to be here. Thanks. Um, this week, the newly established bipartisan House Select Committee held their first hearing on the January 6th insurrection. Uh, now, Republicans have been essentially balking at this, even though they had a chance to create a bipartisan commission. Um, do you think this criticism is in part because of their, I guess, horror, political horror that some of their members may be in, exposed for their role in the insurrection? I mean, we can't know for certain, but I, I absolutely suspect it. Uh, certainly mm -hmm. the statements that Matt Gates, for instance, has made and uh, seem to indicate that there is a significant amount of fear uh, that that will happen. We know that obviously Jim Jordan was just hemming and hawing about whether he was speaking to Trump uh, during the morning of that day. Uh, we know that the, the far, far, farthest fringe of the party in like Marjorie Taylor Greene and whatnot, are trying to rehabilitate uh, the insurrectionists themselves as political prisoners, which is ridiculous. Uh, but all of that would indicate a position that they're not trying to sideline these folks as somehow not part of the uh, main sort of conservative movement, 
but to rehabilitate and embrace them. And I don't think you would be seeing that if they didn't know that there was complicity here up to the highest, up to some sort of higher level among them. Mm -hmm. And I think they're worried about it as well. They should be. Um, the Capitol Police, uh, multiple police officers testified before the Capitol Hill earlier this week, before the committee earlier this week. Um, what did you make of those those jarring testimonies? Uh, it, it was a it was a reminder of just how brutal that day was. Not just for our democracy, dangerous for our democracy, and you know, legislators within minutes of kidnapping and or, or you know injury or death but also you know the the horror that the officers themselves inflicted we're very very lucky that it was not more deadly for those involved um but only because potentially of the restraint that the officers showed in enduring that much violence without uh without using firearms for the most part except for you know ashley barrett uh, ashley uh, Oh, what's her name? Um, I think it was I think it was Babbitt. Babbitt, yeah, yeah, yeah. Except for Ashley Babbitt, uh, not using firearms to to fight back. Um, it could have been much much worse. But even as it was, it was horrific. It was it was brutal. And uh, I'm glad that the officers were not um, didn't mince words in calling it what it was, which was mm -hmm. you know a white uh, a white nationalist insurrection. Yeah. Um, earlier this week, um, DOJ said that they were not going to defend uh, Mo Brooks in this insurrection case. Uh, he being sued by Democratic uh, Congressman Eric Swalwell. Um, Mo Brooks essentially said that he had on, like, I guess, protective gear. He was wearing it at this at this January 6th rally. Many people are saying that you don't wear like protective gear to a peaceful rally. So what do you make of DOJ rejecting him and defending him in this lawsuit and also his his statement there about that protective gear? I mean, I think it would be shocking if DOJ did defend him in the lawsuit, <laughs> frankly. Um, I, I, I think it's like, of course, why would you do that? But no, I mean, yeah, I, I haven't made too much of this because I don't know how often politicians wear protective gear in general when they're at events like this. Uh, obviously, mm -hmm. there's, there's always a risk when you're dealing with large numbers of the public. But yeah, no, it's. I think it's quite obvious that at the very least it indicates that that Mo Brooks knew that he was dealing at the time with a potentially uh, fractious and violent crowd and that they know what they're stirring up when they do this. Uh, they know that it's dangerous and uh, they knew, you know, it doesn't indicate for certain, I'm trying to be responsible here. It doesn't indicate for certain that Mo Brooks knew that he would be leading on an insurrection to the Capitol, but he at very least knew what sorts of forces he was stirring up, uh, and uh, and that at the at a minimum is somewhat indicative. I think we last spoke in May, and I asked you about the prospects of HR one, the For the People Act, uh, passing in the Senate. Um, you were not very optimistic, specifically about uh, because of the filibuster. Uh, there have been now new recent talks about a carve out of the filibuster in order to get voting rights through, and also a revised bill. Um, has your perspective changed on this? And do you think that Democrats are wasting time? I don't know. It, look, it, it comes down to almost a, a 
Kremlinology. Uh, there, if you <laughs> if you know that when we're back in the days of the Soviet Union, you just uh, you used to have whole teams of experts trying to decode body language of various you know Kremlin officials to try and peer into what was going on in the Soviet regime. Um, it feels a lot like that when you're dealing with, say, Joe Manchin, right? Everyone <laughs> or Kristen <laughs> like everyone's trying to speculate on what they will do and. And not just them, but whether those two are in fact giving cover for other uh, more cowardly kind of senators who are letting them take all the heat, who also are in the same boat. Like, it's so hard to know. You'd have to get all 50 on board for at least some sort of, of carve out. There's absolutely no chance that 10 Republican senators, you know, maybe 10 Republican senators will get on board for some infrastructure bill that they're doing and they just you know pretend presented one potentially do we know for sure that the democrats will actually do their part and all 50 get on board for the reconciliation side of infrastructure who knows and hr1 is an even bigger thing right there's going to be no bipartisan kind of hr1 deal mm -hmm. 10 republicans are not going to get on board for it so it all comes down again to mansion and cinema i am doubtful that mansion and cinema and whoever's hiding behind them will do what will do their part and that's part of why you're seeing the white house say well maybe we can out organize the voter suppression it's like yeah no first of all that is completely an unfair thing to even ask of, yeah. of organizers mostly black organizers but also you can't out organize uh gerrymandering or refusing to certify democratic elections in mm -hmm. democratic counties maybe they'll do the right thing i'm hopeful that they will do the right thing and pass at least some reforms, but I'm not optimistic. If we aren't able to get these voting guardrails up before the 2022 midterms, um, are you afraid of what that could potentially present? We're already seeing um, in more states now Republicans conducting um, these bogus audits. Um, a senior official at DOJ recently said, quote, we are concerned that if they are going to keep, um, that if they're going to conduct these so-called audits, they have to comply with federal law and can't conduct them in a way that's going to intimidate voters. So how do you feel about um, where we're currently at right now with, I guess, the 2022 midterms coming up pretty soon? I think it's a deep, deep concern. I think that it's, you don't want to sound wildly alarmist. Um, and, and you never know, I want to do issue some caution. You never know for sure, right? Mm -hmm. uh, those of us who have been in this game for a while, uh, we didn't think that Democrats would be able to take the House until 2020 when we would get our next opportunity to win redistricting. Um, and that, didn't turn out to be the case. Like we were able to take the house earlier than that uh, because of the um, suburban demographic shift. So I'm not going to say it's impossible. I'm not going to say that democracy is necessarily doomed. Um, you, we could in fact see Texas turn blue faster than we thought uh, in spite of everything. We could see uh, positive developments that, that force the GOP into a corner. That said, I think there is serious, serious, serious reason for major alarm. Mm -hmm. And the biggest, the, the biggest downside risk, and I think that the possibility of this sort of downside risk is over 50%, is that gerrymand is that there's enough gerrymandering that it functionally becomes extremely difficult 
for Democrats to win state legislators or, or legislatures or house races. And that the Senate, we already know that 30% um, of uh, the Senate will govern 70% of Americans by 2035. It'll functionally become an apartheid organization. Hmm. We already know that the Republicans are trying to make it be so that they can just overturn the election certifications in Democratic counties uh, and just steal uh, state-based presidential elections that way. Right. If, for instance, uh, right. in Georgia, they were to say, oh, you know what, we're throwing out the results from all the counties in and around Atlanta because we just don't trust that you counted correctly. Therefore, we therefore we refuse to certify the state. Therefore, it goes back to the uh, state congressional delegation. Therefore, we win Georgia in the presidential election, whether we want it or not. Right. And same thing for all the rest of these states. The, the danger of a Eastern European style uh slash Russian style, quote unquote, democracy that functionally is not because it's been gerrymandered and uh, judicially apportioned to such a position that the conservatives can never lose no matter how many votes they win or don't, mm -hmm. is extremely high. And this is our last chance to do something. This is quite possibly our last chance to do something. Speaking of um, overturning elections, on Wednesday, the Washington Post reported uh, that Trump called acting attorney general at the time, Jeff Rosen, almost every day pressuring him about the election. Um, it was just reported today that multiple news organizations have reported uh, that according to notes, uh, Trump called Rosen and asked him to say that the election was corrupt or risk losing his job. Uh, we know this uh, we know that this phone call transpired on December 27th of last year with Rosen and his second in command, uh, which was Richard Donahue. Uh, so both of them were on the line. And then Trump then persisted by saying, um, he said, just overturn, just say that the election was corrupt and leave the rest to me um, and the Republican congressman. We have an obligation to tell the people that this was an illegal um, and corrupt election. Donahue wrote that Trump specifically referred to Jim Jordan, Scott Perry, and Ron Johnson. So when you look at this news, it's like if it would have been successful, it would have been an effectively a nonviolent coup. Um, what do you make of this news? Yeah, I mean, it's it is what it is on its face. He was trying to he was trying to secure the illegal cooperation of state level officials, not just there, but elsewhere. Uh, it happened in, you know, in, in Arizona, it happened in Georgia, it happened mm -hmm. in other states as well, to basically refuse to certify and throw out the elections so that uh, the, it could go back to the Republican House delegations to install Trump as president, which they only hold those House delegations by virtue of gerrymandering. So mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's like, it's an Ouroboros <laughs> of, of voter suppression, apartheid, and, and election theft, right? They gerrymandered so that, like, like, like in Wisconsin, the, you know, 30%, they, they, uh, they hold 70% of the seats despite consistently losing the majority of the votes. Um, yeah. It, it, and this is the danger going forward, right? What, they, what they've learned from the incident is that they just didn't do it hard enough. They've been trying to purge all of the elected officials who stood up to Trump at the time. And there's very, very serious danger. And I don't see any reason why it wouldn't happen at this point that they would 
simply refuse to certify Democratic election victories in these states. Let's say 2024, Trump runs again, or Josh Hawley or whoever, Tucker Carlson, and and they lose Georgia, they lose Arizona. And then Georgia, Arizona officials would just say, no, actually, we didn't lose. Um, We don't trust the results that came in. We say there was fraud. And we're not going to certify. And we're going to hold past certification deadlines. And um, and we're going to throw it back to the House delegation in those states, which, of course, is gerrymandered to be Republican. And we're just going to straight up declare that the Republican won the state on general principle, regardless of the results. And if and if it does come before the electors, uh, before the Congress on January 6th <laughs> to certify that, well, we've already determined that that what happened last January 6th was you know, a bunch of patriots standing up for the standing up for their rights. So we're going to threaten the lives of legislators again if they don't go along with it. Mm-hmm. I mean, why wouldn't they do it again? Yeah. There's been no price for them doing it now. And they've purged all the people who stood up to it. We are in very serious danger mm-hmm. of literally losing our democracy. When it comes to um, majority of the Republican Party believing that um, Donald Trump won the election, and that Trump somehow is going to be reinstated next month. Um, what do you think of that dangerous prospect and the the potential uh, the the potential of violence next month? Yeah. I, I think potential of violence is the right word. Obviously, there is no process for reinstalling Trump. Obviously, these audits are fraud. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not going to uh, they're not going to show anything. I mean, they're looking for bamboo fibers from China. They've had months and months to count one county's votes there. You know, they're scraping, they're looking, and if they'd found anything, of course, at all, uh, they would have come out with it by now. They've got nothing. Um, but the uh, the challenge is, as you note, there are a large number of people who, who do adamantly believe, obviously, that Trump won California in 50 states. Uh, and they adamantly believe that these quote unquote audits, which are not audits, that they are going to like discover that somehow. And they believe that Trump will be reinstalled. Uh, They still believe in QAnon theory that Trump is basically still running the country from behind the scenes and all of that. Um, And when, and they're going to be disappointed, of course. Mm -hmm. Uh, And when they are disappointed, the threat of stochastic terrorism, the threat of violence will, increase significantly as you uh and then that will run into threats of terroristic violence as you approach 2022 and the election day it's a mere it's a very serious problem do you think that many democrats uh, within the party are sort of downplaying this threat or not as or not as concerned as as many people in the country are yeah many i think many are so you, you hear you do hear some uh, many uh, calling out calling this out and talking about it but i think there is a tendency in the um i think there's a tendency in some upper elements of the democratic party to do two things one to to have overconfidence in the institutions and the guardrails right Mm -hmm. uh some folks especially some of the older folks they feel like nothing has ever gone seriously wrong before that, that this too shall pass. We'll get mm-hmm. through it. This is a, uh, 
this is a blip in the ongoing process of democracy and we'll be fine and people should not panic. And then I think on the flip side, there are those who feel like being too upset and panicked about these things will deter from the organizing that we need to do one way or another uh, for the 2022 elections. There's no point in freaking out so much about potential Republicans stealing these things that we um, sit so far on the sidelines and panic so much about it that they just win them out, right, right? So I think both of those things are present. But, and this is one of the challenges, I talk about the, geront the gerontocracy in the Democratic Party a lot, mm -hmm. because I think the younger members, whether they're mods or progressives, right? The younger members understand the threat to democracy here. Um, and I think a lot of the older folks are not quite understanding. Um, now you do have obviously the Kirsten Sinemas and the Joe Manchins who aren't themselves, you know, 80 years old and they're the biggest problem. So I don't want to mm -hmm. overemphasize the point, but yeah, I think, I think the upper echelons of the Democratic Party, especially some of the, uh, the, the older folks uh, do need to be talking with a lot more alarm about this and doing more about it. Once again, my guest is Mr. David Atkins, um, an elected member of the California DNC, as well as um, a contributor to the Washington Monthly. Mr. Atkins, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Of course. Yeah, thanks for doing this. Whether you put down your phone to be there for your daughter... Or pick up your phone to call a helpline for your roommate. When it comes to mental health, now more than ever, every action counts. Welcome back. So at the end of the House Select Committee's first hearing on the January 6th insurrection, um, the chairman of that committee, uh, Democratic Congressman Benny Thompson, he asked the four Capitol Police officers what exactly they want to see in this committee um, as the formal congressional investigation into the insurrection formally gets underway. What would you uh, task this committee uh, in its body of work? What would you like to see us do? We had... Uh violent political rhetoric. We had the um, organization of a rally uh, whose title was uh, Stop the Steal. And that that rally occurred uh, on January 6th, with, which I don't believe was a coincidence. The time, the place, and the circumstances of that rally, that rhetoric, and those events, to me, leads in the direction of our president, and other members, uh, not only of Congress and the Senate, uh, but that is what I am looking for, is an investigation into those actions and activities uh, which may have resulted in the events of January 6th, and also whether or not there was collaboration between those members, their staff, and these terrorists. In my opinion, um we do need to get to the bottom of it. Who incited, who brought those people here? Um, why the people were made to believe that the process was rigged? I need you guys to address 
if anyone in power had a role in this. If anyone in power coordinated or aided or abetted or tried to downplay, tried to prevent the investigation of this uh, terrorist attack. I use an analogy to describe what I want as a hitman. If a hitman is hired and he kills somebody, the hitman goes to jail. Having a little bit of technical difficulties, not sure what happened to the last part of that clip, but Officer Dunn would go on to say not only the hitman goes to jail, but also the person who hired the hitman. Officer Dunn goes on to say someone hired a hitman for January 6th, and I think we should find that person and hold that person accountable. Once again, uh, just the first House Select Committee hearing on the January 6th insurrection. This is going to be very, very intriguing as the whole nation has their eyes on the prospects and also essentially the conclusion of what this committee ultimately produces in their report and also in their investigation as hearings continue. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Jeremiah Patterson Show. I really appreciate it. Have a great day. Remember to stay positive and inspired, and I'll see you tomorrow.